with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to Phronesis. Uh, Thank you for checking in wherever you are in the world. Today, I have Dr. Suze Wilson, and she is a senior lecturer in the School of Management at the University of Massey. Uh, She's passionate about all things leadership, along with an abiding interest in how we can make organizations both effective for external stakeholders and enjoyable places to work for employees. Her doctoral research examined why and how it became normalized in recent decades to equate leadership with these grandiose expectations of transformation and vision, charisma. She argues that these ideas, when examined closely, actually create undesirable pressures on leaders, grant them excessive powers, and rely on the problematic assumption that followers are inherently inadequate. She's interested in theorizing and practicing leadership in ways that are more inclusive and humble. More recently, she's written a short op-ed exploring how conspiratorialism and the so-called infodemic are undermining the good pandemic leadership we had benefited from all across the world, specifically in New Zealand. And she's thinking about the wider undermining of legitimate authority and the potential for a shared reality that these dangerous and toxic influences pose and what that reality might mean for leadership. She has published in the world's best journals, Organization Dynamics, Leadership. And Suze, what gaps do we need to fill in? First of all, welcome. Thank you for being here. But what else do listeners need to know about you? 
Oh, thanks, Scott. I think it's great to be here. Long time listener, first time caller, right? Yes. What else do people need to know? Well, I suppose in some ways I have a little bit of an unusual background in that I came to academia later in life, having been involved in as a practitioner, you know, for for several decades. So starting off in kind of basic factory work, then being a, a, a low-level government worker before I went to university and getting involved in a I guess, a whole range of kind of social justice activism causes, ending up being engaged in student unionism and then trade unionism and and leadership roles. And that kind of then took me into HR management. And so I kind of had several decades of that before getting to the point of going, huh, this leadership gig is really tricky, right? And the expectations that I felt you know, were being placed on me as as someone or in an executive leadership role just felt impossible to live up to. And so that was the sort of question I took into my doctoral research is why are we thinking about leadership in this in this way? It doesn't it doesn't seem viable. Yeah. A lofty, huge, grandiose. As you, I love that in your bio, the grandiose expectations of what it means to be an effective leader. And your doctoral work won awards from the International Leadership Association, correct? Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty exciting day. So yeah, I won the Javelin Award in 2014 and also the, was a joint winner of the Best Critical Management Studies Doctoral Thesis Award that same year through the Academy of Management. So yeah, the ILA uh, award got me a free trip to the San Diego conference, which was pretty exciting. Well, let's jump into this topic at hand. I mean, I think we talk and write extensively about leaders and followers, but rarely do we focus on context and how it's shaping leadership. So what's been on your radar in recent times as it relates to context? What like contextual, what contextual factors are impacting leaders and leadership. I mean, I know that you have this interest in in disinformation and how that's impacting. And you've written an op-ed recently on the topic. Let's jump into that. So, I mean, I've been pretty focused on thinking about leadership in the context of crisis for the last couple of years of, you know, the, the pandemic and feeling that what we were seeing here in New Zealand was a pretty good example of effective crisis leadership compared to what we were seeing in many other countries. But more recently, seeing that really being undermined in many ways as more and more New Zealanders have been influenced by conspiratorial worldviews. And, of course, we're not alone in that regard. There's quite a lot of common ideas, I guess, in in many countries where you see people resisting public health pressures because their resistance is rooted in a rejection of scientific understandings of of the disease and the kind of public health measures that that make a difference. So what I suppose I'm particularly noticing about our current context is that pressure of, if you like, the the immediate crisis of the, the pandemic, but the the kind of the slower burning existential crisis of, of climate change is, you know, how it's intensifying, you know, div- divisiveness and polarisation, intensifying distrust in leaders, frustration that leaders can't somehow resolve, magically resolve these problems and make life just comfortable for all of us. 
and you know in some sense the impossibility of leading at the moment is that you know a significant chunk of followers if we have to use that language are not prepared to tolerate the discomfort that is associated with addressing these challenges you know yeah. they just want somehow things to go away and would prefer to engage in wishful thinking and denialism or you know conspiratorial beliefs rather than confront these harsh realities that that we are actually faced with well Suze, i I'm, I'm sad to hear this because at least in my own impression of the world I was thinking that Jacinda Ardern and the government and the country, you know, had, I mean, really was in my mind a beacon of how to lead effectively in that very, very challenging the context of the pandemic. And I wasn't aware that some of this was even kind of infiltrating the mindset of New Zealanders. What are some examples of what you've seen just in recent times, because at least what I'm understanding from you is this is a little more recent. It's, you know, in the United States, it was right out of the gates. You know, this is fake, you know, from the beginning, there were factions of people. But is this a more recent development in the mindset of the people or a faction of people, I should say? Yeah, so it definitely, things things changed, really started to change here around August last year. So New Zealand had this, you know, extraordinary um, I guess privileged position for much of much of the pandemic. You know, like most countries, the outbreak started here early 2020. But by leveraging our kind of natural advantage of being an island state, but actually being prepared to make a, a bold decision and close our borders, the government was able to suppress that initial outbreak. And, and basically, we had months and months throughout 2020 with zero COVID in the community. Yes. Occasional short outbreaks that got suppressed. And that took us all the way through to August 2021 when we had a Delta outbreak and that couldn't be suppressed. And so we now have community transmission that, you know, we'll never get back to, to elimination. But the government initially, when that outbreak happened, was still trying to, to get back to, to, to elimination. And so we were in a, here in Tamaki Makaro, Auckland, the largest city, we were in a pretty strict lockdown for about four weeks. And during that period, researchers who track disinformation and conspiratorial activity on social media saw a, a really rapid increase in the amount of traffic that mm. those, you know, that, that kind of content was attracting. The government after sort of a, a month, essentially accepted elimination wasn't possible, started easing back on restrictions, pushing vaccination really hard. But really there were quite intense restrictions until December. And as part of that, the government also put in place um, vaccination mandates for, for various professions and, and jobs. And that led to people losing, some people losing their jobs because of their refusal to be vaccinated. Uh. Okay, when in early 2021, so we started getting Omicron, which of course is even more infectious, vaccines are less effective in preventing transmission, although they still prevent serious illness. This kind of conspiratorial wave was still, you know, bubbling along pretty actively. And then the Canadian convoy happened. It was basically picked up here 
and, you know, a whole bunch of people went off to Wellington, camped on Parliament grounds and basically took over Parliament grounds for close to a month. Form of protest that was really quite unusual for our country. You know, the, the, the kinds of imagery that was being shown there were extreme kind of conspiratorial worldviews, uh, an awful lot of really misogynistic imagery of Ardern. And while there was only a couple of thousand people at Parliament, the amount of traffic, again, that they were getting on social media on a couple of days, it actually exceeded the number of clicks that mainstream media was getting, which is an unprecedented kind of disinformation surge. You know, while the, the government has not wanted to indulge any of that, they also haven't been able to be impervious to it. And so over time, the level of collective focus on COVID-related restrictions has eased and it's, it's shifted more to it's your individual responsibility. So that kind of collective momentum that had carried us through for so long and that I think a lot of us felt uh, committed to and proud of, that's been eroded because of the divisiveness. The mandates have by and large been lifted um, other than, you know, really in healthcare now. And, yeah, there is kind of this sense now of, you know, you have to look after yourself. How did the leadership react to the activities at Parliament? How did they respond to almost this new crisis, right? They'd been fighting one crisis, and now we have this new crisis of disinformation, some, it sounds like, elements of extremism, or at least more extreme than had previously been acceptable. Uh, How did they respond to that? What they did refuse to do was essentially refuse to negotiate. Okay. Some people, I guess, then argued, well, that's just, that's being disrespectful, that's not helpful, Um, you know, of course you should meet with these people, they're your citizens, they're really upset, but they held, they by and large held the line and for the the most part had cross-party support on that because the the set of demands that the protesters were, were advocating were really bad from a public health perspective. They were basically saying, you know, any any COVID-related restrictions should be lifted. While they tried to create this narrative that this was an anti-mandate protest, the reality is many people simply didn't even believe that the virus was real. They don't believe in any any of the science. A lot of them are anti-vax. And so the government was just like, well, no, we're not going to negotiate over those sorts of issues. There there is no common, common ground. For some people, that was the right decision because what was also notable about this protest was the level of, it was like the Canadian convoy and that people just turned up with their trucks and their camper vans and blocked the streets around Parliament so businesses couldn't operate, kids going to school were being spat at and abused. So the level of kind of, if you like, low-level violence was, was kind of, against just normal people who weren't part of the protest trying to get to and from around the parliamentary precinct was kind of, again, something we've never seen seen before. And so that was alienating, you know, a, a lot of people. Um, you know, the local authorities were trying to get people moved along. The police took a relatively kind of uh, low confrontation approach. But after three weeks, eventually the police did move in and there was kind of a riot 
uh, as they were as people were moved off. So yeah, they generally refused to negotiate, and I think it was one of those decisions where they were damned if they didn't, damned if they didn't. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know so many leadership judgment calls around these kinds of issues. That is where you find yourself stuck. But you know, I think to my own view is to to give in and indulge this kind of stuff. You know, just just gives it license, and you know, we need to try and push back against it, not 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 foster it. But we also do need to understand why. You know, why have people become so alienated? That yeah. they're, they're so distrustful of of any kind of authority figure. I mean, that's that's tearing at our chances of any kind of society. It, it's a kind of a Hobbesian world we end up in if we don't keep challenging and trying to find ways to to bridge those connections. I just think in the context, it was the right call for for, for Parliament not to be meeting with the people. But it's such an interesting question, you know. Um... The, the the source of the disaffect, the source of the anger, the source of the the fear. I think social media plays a role in that, mm. and that you have these individuals that are ripe for the message, yes. and and then that influences their behavior to that degree. Right? Of course, we saw that in the United States on January sixth, and it's. Mm-hmm. What's the word I'm looking for? It's it's jarring. Certain factions of people, their lived realities that they feel this way, there's something there, right? Yes. Interesting. Yes. It's it yeah, I mean, I suppose if I had been trained as a a a, cons, a, a, a scholar in conspira- conspiratorialism, you know, I would understand these things more deeply, whereas I'm coming to it late because it's it's now so much part of the leadership context. That's what's got me interested in it. But, you know, at, at one point, some of the protesters at Parliament, they literally had put tin, pulled together tin foil and put it on their head because they believed that somehow the government was zapping them with some kind of invisible, I don't know, X-rays or something like that, that there was radiation in the concrete blocks that were being used to try and block traffic. I mean, it was just like you would watch the stuff and just your draw just drops. And it's just like, what planet are these people on? <laughs> but they're absolutely, they're, you can see from their conduct, they're absolutely caught up in this completely bizarre reality that to them is their reality. One of the kind of things that's going on as part of this kind of broader conspiratorial thing is, is a conspiracy theory which has come, thank you, from the US called the kind of sovereign citizens movement who they basically do believe that authorities have no legitimate authority and, you know, so these people are advocating that if you say to a police officer three times, I do not consent, that that means they have no legal authority to arrest you even if you're breaking the law. Wow. There's people, you know, posting images suggesting that you know, Ardern is actually a man or that she's actually a lizard person from another planet. <laughs> and it's just, it's all so crazy, crazy, but people are, you know, that they are acting on the basis of these beliefs. And, you know, I try to imagine what it must be like to see the world through that, that lens and how terrified they must be, really. Mm. I mean, they think the government is trying to poison us and kill us all. 
uh, it must be terrifying. At least some of them must be sincere in their belief that they are trying to, you know, wake the rest of us up to understand what's at, what's at stake. Somehow leadership has a role to play in trying to bring people back into some sense of shared reality because, you know, one of the things that's really struck me the more I've explored this stuff and then contrasted it with kind of what I know about leadership is so many of our leadership theories are built on this fundamental assumption that there is such a thing as legitimate authority that people will accept in mm. a relatively unquestioning manner. And more and more people are not willing to buy into that. Anyone who's trying to claim legitimate authority over them, they will be intensively suspicious of. So you can't even begin to lead when you have no shared notion of, of reality, when you have no shared discourse about what is real and what, what isn't real. Um, and you know that poses a real a real threat. Um, I think I've been reading a, a really interesting author. His he's in the states. His name is Ray Dalio, and he runs a company called Bridgewater. And they they manage, I think, it's one hundred and fifty billion dollars of assets. He is very interested in kind of world history and the economic cycles, and he, he calls it the big cycle. China has gone through these big cycles and China's kind of on the upswing and the US, according to his metrics, he has about 18 different metrics that he's tracking. And this has to do with just even our fiscal policy over decades and printing money and just the decisions we've made that have placed us in weaker positions. But one of the indicators are, are what, what he calls values gaps, where large factions of people start having greater and greater gaps in what it is they value and mm. what their version of reality is, right? Mm. Mm. And it's just very, very interesting, whether it's kind of fear or anger or some of these base emotions that people are tapping into with these factions of folks. I mean, very real ramifications for leadership, right? Yes. And yes. even the concept of influence. Because now a video from Canada will influence a faction of people in New Zealand and all of a sudden, or the United States or wherever else in the world, and that legitimate authority is undermined. Yes. Conspiracy thinking has been around for centuries. We know, we know that. I mean, it's associated with, you know, pogroms against, you know, persecution of Jews in, in Europe for centuries. The Salem witch trials, you know, so it, conspiratorialism is not new what's different is the way conspiracy theories can spread so rapidly around the globe um, and be picked up and given local local expression um you know so rapidly now whereas you know it used to be if you like you know the one village idiot who was you know prepared to think the village you know that the world was flat yes <laughs> would only very occasionally meet an idiot from the other, other village, right? Now, and so, now I can connect with all 10,000 yes, <laughs> flat earthers yes. very quickly. Yes, right? yes. And so, of course, this gives them a sense of validation. It gives them a, a, a sense of community. It's really clear that most radicalization of people now happens online, you know, it happens through their con consumption of, you know, more and more extreme content and the way they find that is by virtue of the algorithms yep. um, 
that the social media companies have to try and keep us clicking and scrolling more and more and more. Um, so, you know, we are being misled, you know, in, in that sense by by non-human forces, but forces which ultimately are subject to human control. They are policy decisions made by those those companies. And what's so interesting also, Suze, is that we're, we are clicking on it. So we also, those, those algorithms are being strengthened when we click on the fear, the anger, we're fueling it. The big tech companies are getting very, very wealthy. Media companies have figured out how to monetize the digital Mm. space because, you know, when print died, then our whole business model died. But now this seems to be the new revenue stream, at least in the States. It's big business. It's big business. And billions are being made on the fear and the anger. And big tech is winning. These media companies are winning because that divisiveness. And so kind of as we were going back and forth in this in this dialogue before we got online today just via email i put that in there of like how do we monetize the middle how do we monetize how do we monetize you know good reasonable human beings <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's sort of like i mean i don't i don't think there's absolutely any easy answer to the <laughs> no. part of when with that pressure on social media companies to be, you know, to, to act in a socially responsible manner, you know, that has to be sustained. And I mean, I think in that regard, you know, Elon Musk buying Twitter is, is a real worry mm. because Twitter is already a hellscape, you know, as, as it is. But, you know, at least there was, it had some capacity, you know, that you could get, if you, particularly if you got involved in campaigns to report you know, people who are posting offensive content, you could maybe get them suspended, maybe get them blocked. But his kind of absolutist, you know, free speech lunacy, you know, it's not a defensible proposition in my view. You know, never in society have people had an absolute right to say anything, you know, to anyone. I, You know, I cannot walk down the street and just shout abuse at people and expect to get away with that. And that's what he's saying should be permitted online you know no no society is ever allowed that so that you know there does need to be policies against that but I think you know we also have to there's a lot that can be done to try and you know I'm thinking here of Kahneman's thinking fast and slow yeah you know to, to be mindful of when we're thinking fast you know and to try and get out of that out of that system and to be more reflexive and to not hit send you know with that angry tweet you know to come back with something more reasoned you know in the hope that they will kind of foster dialogue rather than division but also you know to know when someone is just cynically trying to get in your timeline and and to fuel outrage and to just to block block and de-platform is a better strategy the other thing is you know I think we just have to kind of not lose sight of you know, ancient wisdom that comes down from, you know, and multiple traditions about the importance of prudence, of, of acting in a judicious and thoughtful manner, of not being selfish, of considering the, the consequences of your actions. All of those kind of wisdom traditions are all really pro-social in, in what they, they ask of us and that they ask 
that we not indulge our worst, you know, our worst instincts. So, you know, we have to kind of keep coming back to those as the things that will, you know, allow us to survive because fueling the outrage will just take us down a worse and worse track for sure. The, the risk is that the more and more that happens, the more and more people then look to authoritarian style of leadership as the solution to just kind of quash it all. Yep. And then, then we do lose important freedoms and, and liberties. I'm quite sure that in some sense China and Russia don't have these same kinds of problems, but that's because they're authoritarian states. And I don't see that as a solution to the problems that we have here in liberal democracies of an environment where increasingly anything goes, even if it's made as batshit, right? So I don't, yeah, I'm not, not advocating for the strong arm approach to leadership either. Find a difficult middle ground. Yes. I mean, it, it's it's a very, very interesting puzzle. How do you lead in this context? And I actually, in, in some ways, very much respect New Zealand, how the government dealt with that relatively very small faction of people. If it was a couple thousand, I understand that there were probably more who weren't there and more who have that mindset. But yes, as soon as we lose a sense of what our shared values are or what right and wrong is or what truth is. And again, I understand the arguments of different lived realities and and that's, that's a very interesting conversation. But there are some truths. I can't look at the police mm-hmm. officer and say, I do not consent. <laughs> I, I do not consent. <laughs> that can't be. <laughs> no. no, I can't. But no, I mean, not, I mean, we don't, in some sense, unless you want to go out and live in the bush and be a complete hermit. Yeah, yeah. You know, we all of us have to accept certain limitations to, in order to be in society. Yeah. We can't have things all our own way. I can't choose to drive down the wrong side of the road just because I feel like it. And I want to say, well, that's my expression of my individuality. It's like, no. (laughs) Well, one interesting observation, at least in in the United States that I had over the course of the last last couple of years, the last two years, what's really interesting, at least, and and I'd love to get your opinion on this. A good friend of mine is in public health. A good friend of mine is in a very, very, very successful, a very well-known and and well-respected public health uh, institution in the United States. And I said to him, look, you know, it feels like you all are losing command of the narrative. And, and he said to me, he said, look, we've, we are scientists, we report the data and the data speaks and decisions are made, but we've never had to really think about commanding the narrative, or we've never had to think about influencing large factions of people, at least in in, in recent times, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's very, very interesting this, you know, how do leaders influence that narrative in today's context, whether yeah, that's yeah. the use of social media, there has to be a better way of communicating those shared values, communicating yeah. the narrative in a way that reaches because it's it's not working right now in large in many ways, right? Yes. They aren't commanding yes. the narrative. Yes. A couple of thoughts there is firstly we we can't think of it as a pyramid process, right? It, it's um it's a much more distributed yes. thing because we we listen to those we trust. A significant 
part, although arguably not significant enough, but at least there was some of it, significant part of the government's effort to persuade people to get vaccinated here has been about devolving that work to local community providers. Within Māori culture, traditional, traditional, the kind of the, if you like, the village centre is called the marae. Mm-hmm. That's where the, the meeting house is. That's where all important meetings of the community happen. Traditionally, people used to, there'd also be houses and people would live on the marae. But many urban marae now and town and city centres, it's just a, it's just a, a, a meeting house and, and you know, some, some land associated. So many marae are involved in healthcare provision now and that giving them funding to do outreach into their community was absolutely key to getting Māori vaccination rates up because they were falling behind when the government had a more centralised approach because people did not necessarily trust white, so we call them Pākehā, health providers. They wanted it needed to be localised. And similarly, church communities have been incredibly important part of the vaccination program. So my partner was actually working on the vaccination program during the rollout last year. And you know, so many churches opened up, opened up their doors and were running vaccine centers through them to bring in members of the congregation because the fact that the the local pastor says, here I am, watch me get vaccinated, I'm okay, come in, bring in the rest of the congregation into the process. So we have to understand if we're trying to shift something at a large scale, we have to distribute that effort. We have to give as much power and authority and knowledge and support as possible to people who are operating at a collective level because people we, we believe those we trust. Yes. Oh, that's so well said. That's such a interesting tactic. I'm sure elements have existed of that, of that existed in my community. I'm not aware of it. So for me, it's a new idea. It's a new way of thinking about, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, it probably occurred in the United States that vaccination centers were in places of worship. I, I just hadn't heard that, right? Wow. But it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Can you think of other ways of thinking about how you influence individuals? I mean, I love that idea. So New Zealand has done pretty well with its vaccination uptake. So we've got over 90% of adults double-dosed, about 70 So we the main vaccine here is the Pfizer. And so we're about, I think, 70% triple-dosed, triple um, yeah. which is what you're in the The under-11 rollout is still happening. We're about halfway there for first dose, so that's a bit, a bit slower. So... To try and build support for that, there's been a lot of emphasis on, you know, obviously this helping people to understand the science of it, but trying to have those messages again conveyed by people who were who were trusted. So I know, for example, of a a, a Maori doctor who's had, who ran a whole program of visits uh, into prisons to speak to Māori prisoners uh, because we know prisons generally are very high-risk environments and people who are incarcerated generally don't trust authority figures, right? So it had to be someone from a community that they felt they were members of. A lot of use of, if you like, kind of social media influences 
people in bands, people involved in platforming their support for vaccination. <laughs> we had a kind of a, a national day of action at one point, a telethon. Do you know what a telethon is? I, I know a telethon. Are we yeah, defining yeah. it the same way where yeah, I'm on the phone yeah. and I'm calling? Yeah and, yeah, and it's, you know, kind of run for 24 hours on the TV and, you know, lots of local feeds and silly events and that sort of thing. So, you know, we kind of had one of those days to you know a day of kind of a vaccination national day yeah which was, i have to say full of fascinatingly bad tv <laughs> you know, because it's kind of like it's yes. an experiment in this these wicked problems this vuca context that we exist in we're running experiments to see how we i mean because 90 percent did you say 90 percent were double vaxxed and 70 triple I mean, yeah. that has to be leading the world. It's 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 close to. Yeah. Yeah. There are some countries that are better, but it's pretty good. Yep. So, yeah, so there was a, a lot of emphasis, I think, on providing information, but distributing who was conveying that messaging, allowing them to tailor those messages in a way that was suitable and using vehicles, platforms, channels that were, were relevant yeah, I mean, if I listen to anything on Spotify here, I'm still getting routinely ads because I don't have a Spotify account. Yeah. You know, ads, depending on uh, which artist I'm listening to, that the ads will be different because they're, they're clearly targeted to what demographic they think is listening to their artist. And these are, you know, these are government paid for ads, but, you know, they're using people that people would trust to try and convey that message. Yeah, so a lot of, and trying to build a, a sense of collective ownership and effort around it. And that, that's been really the big shift from sort of the last quarter of last year as we we're fighting the outbreak and trying to drive up vaccination rates to where we are now is a, a big shift from collective effort and collective responsibility to now, well, you, you've got the tools, here are the policies. And and if the, you know, you're in that last 10%, you know, you have resources if you need them. Leaders have to be thinking how so the examples you just shared, I think absent of us thinking that way, then you're leaving it open to whatever other narratives are going to emerge and take over. And of course, then again, once those even hints of those other narratives emerge, the media latches on, we yeah. click, the algorithm elevates, these people make money. <laughs> It becomes bigger in our own heads and becomes real in some cases. And if yes. something isn't combating that, or if I'm going with the, the normal way of, well, I said it at the press conference, well, a tiny, teeny faction of people learned about your press conference. We need to do yes. this differently, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, certainly for heads of state, they have to, you know, understand while they, in some sense, be a responsibility for articulating a message if that message is not being picked up and translated yeah. by multiple other influences then not much is going to happen in exactly. reality exactly because uh, there's so many people are just never going to engage with mainstream media to hear that message in the first place they're off in their own little bubble yep confirmation bias <laughs> Suze, let's keep let's keep this conversation going. Let's keep this 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 narrative about the larger context, and let's keep keep thinking about what does it mean to influence in the digital age. What is that? 
uh, again, the leader may stand up and give a speech, but is that speech effective in shifting public mindset, narrative, pride, ownership, values, you know, shifting and shaping values and, and, and shared values. And I think at times we're losing that war or the leader is losing that war. And so a different approach to that influence and thinking about how we influence, even again, if it's pride, if it's just the the good that's happening, because again, that gets lost as well. All of the good that's happening gets buried, which then also creates this this distorted perception of the mm. world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a... I think one of the challenges we've had here have been quite unrealistic expectations about what the government or any government, frankly, could or could not yeah. could not do. At times the kind of the beat up because something wasn't perfectly done, you know, I'd just be looking at it and just going, what do you expect? Yes. yes. What on earth? Who could have got it perfectly right in these circumstances? Give them a break. Are they doing relatively better than most? Yes. Okay, awesome. You yes. know, be grateful for that. And are they are our leaders showing signs that they're trying to learn and adapt yep. continuously as, as information changes, circumstances change? Yes. Okay. So so give them support. Don't just tear them down because it wasn't perfect. But there's certainly been a really strong element of of that and the narrative all the way through. And I've found it incredibly irksome. Well, and to circle back to where we started today, part of that is that narrative that of the great leader, the charismatic leader, the perfect transformational leader. No, that doesn't exist. It never has in history. It didn't, but we lionize that individual as... Wow. Oh my gosh. And of course, the only stories you hear about some of these individuals is the great good, <laughs> but they had foibles too, many of them, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I think it does the work a disservice if that's the bar we're setting. So I love that part of your work because I think it's, that's no person, right? That No, no oh, one is that. It's such a seductive yes. piece of- Oh, isn't yes. it? And I mean, it's such a, it's been such a dominant force in our field. Yep. For so long, and of course, that's then what flows through to what people are taught. Yes. Um, you know, so and so we kind of feed the cycle of expecting perfection. You know, all the while, <laughs> all the while knowing that really it's impossible. I worry, you know, at times that leadership educators are potentially setting their students up for you know actually a a pretty significant degree of existential angst when they realize oh my god I'm not transformational but I was working on the budget today and that seemed quite important it's like yes those mundane things actually are quite important you know leadership isn't kind of all floating up here being visionary and highfalutin there's a lot of just daily practical grind that happens in organizations that that matters and we shouldn't denigrate the value of that that work and nor should we indulge the fantasy that there's a few exceptional people who are going to save the rest of us from ourselves (laughs) so well said (laughs) Suze real quick because we need to wind down what have you been listening to reading watching streaming what's caught your attention in recent times 
So I have to say, I, I watch everything, you know, anything I watch on TV, I always watch it through the lens of, of leadership. And so the last couple of months I've been binging on succession. Oh, yes. Oh, which I just think is a really fascinating narrative when, when you see it through leadership and, you know, the, the way the patriarch controls and manipulates the family and everyone else is in, in thrall to his, to his leadership, oh, put, putting air quotes around. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's a, a great series to watch through the lens of, of leadership to, to mm. notice occasional moments when people try to do something positive but mostly caught up in this toxic web and how difficult it is to to break free of that because you, you know you, you're quite exposed at that point that you're trying to do to do something different yeah so that would be that would be one thing and yeah I'm reading a lot about trying to understand conspiratorialism yeah and yeah my jaw is dropping a lot <laughs> the more I read the more I learn so sadly it's become not at the margins now I think it's a significant issue that leadership scholars need to turn some attention to had a wonderful conversation with Joanne Chula and she was talking about just kind of resentment and the emotion of resentment. And I think the challenge in the last couple of years is the challenge in the last couple of years, but for listeners, for scholars, for just interested individuals, there are a lot of dynamics right now that are ripe for exploration that we need to better understand. And I think there's an opportunity there for interested individuals to help us better understand some of these these dynamics so that we can so that we can come up with ways to keep ourselves within the boundaries. <laughs> no, I mean I think the more we connect, you know, bring our leadership means to significant issues, the more contribution we can make. I mean, I think, you know, leadership has leadership scholars could be doing a lot more in helping the work around climate change and climate change, you know, the kind of transition to a zero zero carbon economy. We've got ideas that we could bring to, you know, to, to bring tailor-made advice to yep. that kind of challenge. You know, and there's lots of lots of other issues that I think if we lean into that, if we work at that kind of transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary nexus, Rather than just kind of being purist and abstracted, uh, we can we can add add insights that could help people. Because that's another great example that we could spend a lot of time discussing, but the client climate scientists have not effectively communicated or influenced a large enough faction of people yet to take serious, considerable measures to combat where we're headed. And and we could get into arguments about the nuances, but the reality is humans have had an impact on the planet in a number of ways, and the the numbers are not going in good directions. As India is, you know, or Pakistan is at record highs in temperature, what are we going to do to combat that, regardless of the source, so that we can live in a you know in a world that is inhabitable? And so yes. that's another ripe example of the scientists haven't yet influenced a large enough faction to take action. 
And and, and again, that might be part of the human condition, right? Um, uh, being proactive about changing. Suze, you're coming back and we're going to talk more. Will you please? Yeah, love to. Okay. We, cause we have more to discuss, but I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to continuing this dialogue and continuing this conversation because I think this is a contextual shift that is having major ramifications on mm. the work of leaders mm. and how leaders navigate that is critical. It's absolutely critical to our success. And uh, thank you for the good work that you do. And I'm looking forward to our next chat. Thanks, Scott. It's really great to chat with you too. Okay, be well. You too. What a really fun conversation with Dr. Suze Wilson about some of the contextual shifts that we're seeing. I think, you know, there's two books that have really, really gotten my attention in recent times. I mentioned one over the course of the podcast, and that is the book by Ray Dalio, uh, Principles for Navigating a Changing World Order. I'll put the, a link to that. And I'm in the middle of a book that Henry Mintzberg had mentioned, which was 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And I'll put a link to that as well. I'm in the middle of that book. And that also working to really help us think through some of these seismic shifts in the context. And having an eye on that is critical as we think about the topic of leadership. Going back to Barbara Kellerman's notion of the leadership system, leader, followers, contexts, and, uh, you know, one heuristic to th- be thinking about this phenomenon called leadership. So, Dr. Suze Wilson, thank you so much for being with me. What a fun, interesting, challenging, gnarly conversation. And I think one that we have to keep our eye on, and I look forward to us having further dialogue. For those of you thinking about where you can have that dialogue, you know, the International Leadership Association has just opened up their registration for the conference this fall in Washington, D.C. So check that out. I'll put a link to that also in the show notes. It's a great opportunity to connect with people from around the world. I know I'll be there probably sitting in the lobby, hanging out, connecting with friends that I haven't seen in three years. (laughs) So it's going to be a blast. I can't wait. Everyone, take care. I hope you are well. As always, thank you so much for checking in. It means a lot. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with others. Always appreciate that as well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.